Hi, friends. Welcome to episode three of Blame It on the Aliens. I'm your host, and this episode I'm going to be reading parts three and four of the Reddit post that I read in episode one. So if you have not listened to that, definitely go back and listen. The story gets more intense. I'm not joking. It's terrifying. Um, The title of that post is, When I was six years old, my sister disappeared during a hike on a family camping trip in, in Yosemite. Yesterday, she was found alive. It's been 15 years since the day she disappeared. Um, It picks up where it left off in episode one. So with that being said, welcome to episode three and let's get into it. When I awoke, I realized I was in the middle of a river of dead bodies. I gagged and spit salt water flooding from my lungs and I fought to keep breathing. The body smashed into me, enormous waves pushing and pulling and sucking me underwater. I was pulled under, salt water flooding my lungs again, and I felt myself on the verge of convulsing. Suddenly, I felt the bodies part and I clawed my way back to the surface. Salt water exploded from my nose like a foundation of blood gushing from an open wound. Vomit erupted from my mouth, coating the front of my gray sweatshirt. I felt seasick as the salt water and dead bodies were washed out by the sounds and smells of Tulum Hospital. Arjun's heart monitor beeped as I grabbed hold of his hospital bed to steady myself but the waves threatened to pull me under, and I started to slide off my chair. Suddenly, I felt someone grab me. Holy shit, Amy, you okay? My heart jumped uncomfortably in my chest. Jack. Hi. My back was cramped and sore from the uncomfortable hospital chair. I must have fallen asleep waiting for Arjun to wake up after being wheeled out in surgery. You got my text? I checked the time. Almost one o'clock. It had been almost four hours since I'd basically crashed in the emergency lane at Tulum and thrown Arjun on a gurney myself. When did you get here? Just got here. He gestured to his EMT uniform. I'm on lunch break. Jack was pre-med at the nearby Columbia College and worked at Tulum Hospital part-time as an EMT. Arjun left me a voicemail saying he'd gotten into a car accident? But then you texted to meet me here? I don't understand. Were you with him? Paula, leaving my house in the middle of the night, crashing at Arjun's, discovering that Arjun had been investigating my sister's disappearance, the photos of missing girls, all 10 girls missing. Then suddenly, hearing something from outside, black SUVs rushing towards Arjun's house, making a break for it, and Arjun getting shot. Then the car windows shot out, glass everywhere. Arjun leaving Jack a panicked voicemail, then passing out. Me, seeing all the blood, deciding to take Arjun to the hospital instead. 
but his questions just washed over me like the salt water from my dream. I was covered in vomit. God, this is so gross, I whimpered as I desperately searched for a rag or a towel or anything I could use to clean myself. Jack noticed. Amy Bell, here, let me help you. He helped me pull off the gray sweatshirt, his old nickname for me. I caught a glimpse of myself in the full-length mirror. I looked sick, sweaty, and my tight white t-shirt and matching gray sweatpants looked dirty and wrinkled. My heart twisted. God, I look terrible. Jesus, Amy, Jack said slowly. Why are there shards of glass in your face? He reached out to touch them. And your arm, too? He stood up and started bustling around. From the cabinets, he pulled out galls, rubbing alcohol, and tweezers. Let me get that glass out. Come on, dude, stop. I tried to push him away. I could feel tears in my eyes, and I was trying not to get overwhelmed. But he was too close to me, and I wasn't sure what to do or what to say. The last three years of unanswered text messages and unanswered feelings hung like a curtain between us. It didn't help that he looked the exact same, too. Same dark eyes, same dark skin. His dreads were a little longer, I noticed, but that was it. He was wearing new glasses, too. I kind of wondered if the new girlfriend got those glasses for him. He grabbed my hands, interrupting my thoughts. You'll get infected if the glass doesn't come out. Seriously, Jack Jenkins, threatening me with infection? Could you just... He held up his hands. How about this? For every glass shard I pull out of your face, I get to ask a question. After all, I did get a frantic phone call from Arjun this morning who insisted I meet him. Then I got an equally frantic text from you saying that Arjun was in surgery. I mean, he does have a point. Fine, I relented. Thank you, he said snippily. He then dug a little too happily into my face and I winced. Okay, there. So first question, why did Arjun want to meet at my house and not the hospital? I sighed. I'm not sure. Honestly, maybe he doesn't have health insurance. I sighed again. I mean, he passed out before I could even get an answer from him. Jack nodded, then leaned in again. God, he even smelled the same. Okay, there. Question two. Why did you bring him to the hospital instead then? I sighed. Because Arjun's got that fucking heart condition and he was dying and he was being an idiot and he had gotten shot and shit. The truth slipped out. Crap, shit. I pressed the heels of my hands onto my forehead. There was so much happening and I was just so tired. Jack stopped short. Wait, shot? Like with the gun? I thought you said in text that it was a car accident. I mean, it will, I mean, it kind of was that too. Jack interrupted me. Amy, he grabbed the sides of my face. My skin burned where he touched me. Be honest with me. Is this a drug thing? <laughs> a drug thing. Of course he thought it was that. That's all I'll ever be to him. Every pill, 
every mistake. The five years I spent dating him reared up like a snake threatening to bite. Those three little words tore me apart, tore my chest apart, like I was nothing. Because I was nothing, especially to Jack Jenkins. No, Jack, it wasn't a drug thing. Then what was it? His grip tightened. It's been three years, Amy. Three years since I've heard from you. Since I've even seen you. Since any of us besides Arjun have seen you. Three years since... Three years since one of the worst days of my life. We were at a picnic organized by our parents. We were all there, including all of our parents, except for my mom. Mine and Jack's fifth year anniversary was coming up. We felt it was a big accomplishment at the age of 18. Part of that, though, was the condition that I quit abusing Xanax and alcohol. Jack thought I was quitting. He thought that because, I mean, I told him I was. And honest to God, I tried. I really did. But every time I quit and I flushed those pills down the drain, that's when the feelings started happening again. And the only way to stop them was to make myself numb. Jack caught me with the pill bottle and ended it right then and there. Hey, Amy. Jack gently tapped the palms of my hands. Hey. You, you went somewhere. I forced myself back into the present. The dreams dissipated, leaving me in the disappointing reality. His words layered me into concrete, pushing my feelings down even further. I felt numb and cold. Hmm? What? His eyes looked sad, resigned. I asked, why did you come back, Amy? Because fuck you, Jack. Because... Paul is back, Jack, I said simply, and I need to contact Louise for me because I'm pretty sure she knows why. The look on his face was priceless, but I suddenly felt sick. The words had left bile and acid in my throat. They burned, leaving my mouth, and I felt like they were slowly eating me alive. I stood up, feeling a little wobbly in my knees. Here. I handed him my phone. There's a video I need you to see. Jack took it. Code? All zeros. Jack punched it in. The phone lit up. He looked at me, and his lip curled a brief moment. Tight security? But I ignored him. I'm gonna go get some food. Just keep an eye on Origin until I get back. The second he wakes up, we need to leave. My stomach grumbled as I wandered down the hall from Arjun's room. I was looking for the vending machines, but they'd put him in the recovery room upstairs in the northeast wing, and Tulum Hospital was in the shape of a perfect square with hallways running north and south and east and west. At the entrance, there's a help desk, which welcomes you in, surrounded by a ring of offices and blood-testing lab facilities, the trauma center where Arjun had been wheeled into, and the urgent care are also on the first floor. Upstairs, on the second, third, and fourth floors, you'll find more specialist units, such as cardiology, or coronary care unit, intensive care unit, neurology, cancer center, obstetrics and gynecology. There, 
found them. I wandered over to the familiar blue light, like a moth to flame. I rested my forehead against the cool glass of, as the evenings from this morning washed over me. Arjun got shot, I thought, because of me. My throat felt thick and I struggled to swallow. I forced myself to fight back the tears. Arjun could have died as that man in the white suit shot into the goddamn car. The sensation of the exploding glass gripped me again and again. Another person dead because of me. My breathing got short and the edges of my vision started to go white. No, calm down. I balled my hands into fists and forced myself to deep breathe. You cannot afford a panic attack. Not now. With everything that was swimming around in my brain, there were only two things I knew for certain at this moment. One, I hadn't eaten since yesterday, and that stale bag of Cheetos and rope E4 was looking delicious. And two, me and Arjun needed to get the fuck out of this hospital. Although I wasn't sure where we would even go. Maybe my apartment? I mean, we could hide out there until we figured out what to do. I wiped the tears from my eyes and punched in four quarters. The Cheetos fell to the drawer and I bent down to pick them up. In the reflection of the glass, I suddenly recognized someone very familiar starting to walk up the hallway behind me. Hide. I need somewhere to hide. Desperate, I scanned the hallway. There were a series of offices with doors emblazoned with names that I assumed were doctors and specialists. Then, supply closet. Without a second to lose, I opened the door and ducked inside. My heart pounded. I listened as my mother walked into the office directly next to mine. Jay, my mother's shrill voice slurred. Do you think it's wise to keep calling these meetings, especially with everything that's happening? The reason I called you here, Cassandra, a voice I'd recognize anywhere, answered her. It was Dr. Jenkins. My blood ran cold and I started to panic. I can't get caught. I can't get caught. Not now. To steady myself, I shoved my hands into the pockets of my sweatpants. There was something hard in them. I pulled it out. It was a tape recorder that I had always kept on me. Without even thinking, I turned it on. It's because your daughter is fucking missing. I beg your pardon, Jay? Language. She sounded drunk. My blood curdled at the sound. She's at home. Where else? Dr. Jenkins interrupted her. Not that daughter. I heard his exasperation in his voice. Amy, where the hell did Amy go? I was feeling lightheaded. Holy fuck. They were looking for me. There was a crack of light where the supply closet connected to Dr. Jenkins' office. I could see through it and see my mother standing in her powder blue skirt suit looking down at Dr. Jenkins, who was sitting behind the mahogany desk. My mother's tone was loud and dismissive. How should I know? She's probably back at school. 
you you don't know. <laughs> Dr. Jenkins put his fist down hard on his desk. You don't know? She's not at school, nor at her apartment. We checked this morning, and she's not at your house either. So I ask again, where is she? Why do you care? We care. I suddenly realized my mother and Dr. Jenkins weren't alone in his office. There was a group of adults sitting there with them, including Arjun's parents, Arjav and Raji. His mother, Raji, sounded like she's been crying. My heart twisted. God, I loved Arjun's parents. They ran a chain of candy shops in Grovefield, and I used to love getting candy from them as a kid. Even now, as an adult, it was such an instant hit of euphoric happiness every time I visited there. I was happy they were still open, considering that I'd never actually seen anyone buy anything from there. Because apparently, there has been a shooting on Connor Street, and Arjun, your son was involved in that? My mother suddenly sounded shocked. Is, is he okay? But the church said that the man in the white, he... Arjun's fine. Arjab, his dad, spoke up. I couldn't see him, not in the position I was sitting in, but his voice sounded sharp, electric. He's alive for now, but apparently he was shot. He's at this hospital in room 182. I was flabbergasted. His parents knew he was shot? Do they know why? Why haven't they done anything? My brain was spinning in circles and I suddenly was having a hard time breathing. But before we go see him, we need to know what they know. Cassandra, Jay spoke up again. He sounded closer to me. He must be leaning back in his chair. This is starting to unravel. And at the center of it are your daughters. My daughters? Her voice positively dripped acid. Her tone went scary low and quiet. There's such a tiny part of this How dare you insinuate that they, that that Amy, the drunk, and the almost dropout, or, or that my Paula would? Even the tiniest thread, Arjev suddenly whispered, can pull apart the greatest tapestry. His voice was so low, I could barely hear him. And you and your arrogance and and blind faith brought that loose end home. Anger was thickening in his voice. You brought that thing home and exposed Amy. Smack. Arjav was cut off and I suddenly heard my mother slap him hard across the face. How dare you? She kept shrieking as I heard pandemonium in his, in, in his office. Chairs scuffed hard against the linoleum. Stacks of binders were shoved to the floor. A desk lamp was overturned. How dare you call her that? Calm down. Dr. Jenkins sprang to his feet and forced them apart. Cassandra, stop. Calm down. I spotted my mother th- through the crack of the door. Her blue suit was disheveled, and her shiny exterior shell was beginning to crack. 
Dr. Jenkins turned a chair upright and gently pushed her to sit. We need to know, has Paula said anything to you, to Amy, to your husband? Specifically, has she said anything to you about the mountain? My mother was sitting perfectly still, her posture as stiff and as unforgiving as that chair. Her hands twisted the strap of the powder blue handbag like she was twisting the top of a Diet Coke bottle. No, she hasn't said anything. Her handbag was clicking gently. In fact, her voice went thick with emotion. She hasn't said anything at all. She also doesn't eat. She doesn't do anything. She's a shell. She was crying harder now with her elbows on her knees and her hands cradling her head. After all these years, I still don't understand. She wasn't supposed to be taken. I was promised. She looked at Dr. Jenkins with red-rimmed eyes. I did everything right. I loved the church. And this is how I'm repaid? Jesus, Cassandra, this same old shit? Suddenly another voice. A man standing to the right of Dr. Jenkins' desk. I couldn't see him, but I'd recognize that voice too. It was Louise and Daphne's father, Roger Tits. You aren't the only one that's missing a child. Their father was a quiet but imposing man. Roger Tits owned a series of incredibly successful laundromats, and he'd moved to Grodefield right after Daphne was born, and right after he'd lost their mother to a horrific car accident. The driver had walked, not only from his destroyed vehicle, but from the following case trial as well. Roger had lost everything. He moved to Grovefield right after his two young daughters, a newborn and a nine-year-old, and he'd always said that it was his only chance to recover what was lost. My mother sniffled. She was a pitiful sight. You have your business at least. Yes, but Daphne wasn't part of the deal. He turned to Dr. Jenkins. Neither was Paula. We have only three weeks until he paused. But it feels different this time. Stronger. He paused again. He sounded different. It took me a moment to realize why. He sounded scared. It feels unbalanced, he murmured. Do you, do you think the head knows, Jay? Jesus, how can you say that? Dr. Jenkins retorted loudly. God, no. If the head finds out, all of our kids, Amy, Arjun, Jack, Louise, they're all dead. We're dead. Anybody connected to this. Jesus, I thought to myself, horrified. What? is going on? What are our parents involved in? I want out. My mother sniffled loudly. I want to be done. The room was silent. Nobody said anything except for my mother's loud sniffs. You can't get out, Cassie. You know that. Dr. Jenkins finally said softly, we all went to the mountain for a reason. He looked tired, haggard, and he was wearing a white lab coat over black wrinkled scrubs. As he bent down to pick up the binders that had knocked to the floor, I noticed something. 
there were thick black leather bracelets encircling his wrist like handcuffs. They were strapped tight to his skin, practically cutting the circulation off, and it looked like his wrists were bleeding. No, that, that's not blood. I suddenly realized thin black vines extended from the bracelets and were burrowing themselves into his skin. I recoiled. And now we need to deal with the consequences. Suddenly my legs gave out. I tried to stop myself, but I fell hard, accidentally knocking over a stack of buckets. I heard something cry out in Dr. Jenkins' office, but I didn't wait to see who it was. I turned off the tape recorder and sprinted out into the hallway. Arjun was just waking up by the time I made it back, and Jack was standing over him, helping him sit up. The hospital computer was beeping frantically, and in one furious motion, I bent down and unplugged it. I went silent. Amy, what the fuck? Jack said. I gripped his arm hard. We need to leave now. I couldn't think straight. All I could see were those black bracelets burrowing into Jack's dad's arms. I turned to Arjun. Can you walk? Amy. Arjun was loopy, I could tell, but surprisingly coherent. He was struggling to sit up, but the drug's effects were very slowly wearing off. Hey, hey, Amy. He grabbed my hand. Hey, you didn't leave me back there. Thank you. Oh, Arjun. I cupped his hand and brought it to my cheek. For a brief second, I forgot about Dr. Jenkins. I forgot about the bracelets. I forgot about my mom racing down the hallway to find me. Don't even say that. Intense relief washed over me. He was alive. Of course I didn't leave you. You had the car keys. Arjun chuckled, sitting up, but his expression quickly turned sour. Wait, are we in the hospital? Jack leaned over to help him up. Amy felt like because of the seriousness of your leg, you needed more serious help. Fuck, Arjun said, cutting him off. I mean, thank you, but I don't think you realize that, what, that all our parents are involved in this, including Jack's dad, Dr. J. Jenkins? I finished the sentence for him. I handed him his blue robe from earlier and a gray tracksuit that Jack had bought. Wait, my dad is involved in what? Jack asked, shocked. I overheard them. He's here. All of our parents are here now in this hospital. I was helping Arjun up. And they know. Know about what? About this, I gestured wildly. About me ditching my parents' house. About Arjun getting shot. About Paula coming back as this fucked up demonic shell. I could feel my mother's words echoing inside me. We need a plan. Wait, hold up. Jack held up his hands. What does my dad have to do with this? And that he pointed to my phone and and Paula coming back? I mean, because first starters, he was the first fucking person to see her. Besides that ranger and my parents. He was with her every second she spent at this godforsaken hospital. I felt at the end of my rope. I mean, I could practically feel my mother racing down the hall to catch me. We needed to leave, and now. And he didn't say anything to you, didn't? Don't you find that a little suspicious? 
But Jack was shaking his head. I mean, there's got, there's got to be some sort of explanation. We need to leave. I'll explain on the way. I picked up Arjun's bag and helped him up. Everything else we had was in that Pony, Pontiac, along with Milo and Monroe, who were just waiting for us. Wait, shit. I paused in the doorway. Where, uh, where should we go? My apartment's out. I mean, Jack's dad was there this morning, I said panicked. Arjun's home is out. My parents' house has this fucking thing crawling around. And but Jack interrupted me. The cabin. I mean, you could hide out there for as long as you need. Duh. The cabin. I didn't even think of that. That was the perfect place. You sure? But he was nodding. The elevators dinged and we were descended to the ground floor. We were almost out. The parking lot was right through the entrance doors. I could practically see the Pontiac from where we were. In the back corner, where I'd haphazardly parked in the morning, Jesus, the Pontiac looked bad. There was glass everywhere, all over the passenger seat, and the entire back seat was coated in blood. Jack took his jacket off and laid it down before helping Arjun into the back seat. Monroe and Milo went crazy, whining and licking him. I paused, my hand resting on the door handle. Look, I... Stop. Gently grabbing my arm, he turned around to face me, but I couldn't stop. The words just kept pouring out. Look, I I just wanted to thank you. Amy, stop. He brushed a curl from my hair where it had fallen over my eye. I'm coming too. My heart thudded. You're what? He nodded. After my shift, he started walking backwards towards his car, an old beat-up white Subaru. After all, I've got to finish fixing you up, he called out. You still remember where the cabin is? Oh, I I remember. I was on Main Street, heading out of town. Arjun had just passed out as the adrenaline from this morning wore off and the events from this morning had knocked him out. I stopped briefly for snacks and water. And we were about to drive eight hours, and I was still starving. There was a lot of traffic, and I was stopped, waiting to pull out of the gas station. That's when I saw it. There was an accident up ahead. It looked horrific. A car had flipped across the meridian and struck a small Honda Civic. Accidents always got bad during tourist season down here. Sometimes it was road rage, sometimes drunk driving sometimes just carelessness. Out of the small, crushed Honda Civic, it looked like only one person had survived. A woman, weeping, was sitting by the side of the road watching as the ambulance was being loaded up with the bodies of her companions. But as the ambulance pulled away, I suddenly realized something. She wasn't alone. Because standing behind her was the man in white. Part four. You're not supposed to travel these roads at night. They say it's because they're too narrow and too wild that it'd be easy to pop a tire. That these roads are so isolated that it'd take hours for anyone to find you. Travel during the day, they say. Stick to the paved roads around these wild woods and whatever you do, avoid any shortcuts that cut straight through. 
heed this warning and heed this rhyme, especially if you were to find yourself at the Sweet Hollow Pass. Look, I was tired. I hadn't eaten in almost 24 hours. Arjun had fallen asleep hours ago after violently trying to fight the medication the hospital had injected in him. I didn't even have him to distract me as my eyelids were growing heavier by the second. I was desperate, and the Sweet Hollow Pass was a shortcut that cut through the tail end of Six Rivers National Forest. Instead of taking Highway 93 all the way around, the pass cut straight through, shaving almost three hours off the trip. I could feel my eyelids drooping heavier by the second, so I needed to do something, anything. Swallowing hard, I took the hard right off Highway 93 and onto Sweet Hollow Pass. They say somebody died out here. Another tourist told me that during the summer after our freshman year. Jack, Louise, and I have been working in gift shops around Six Rivers when we first heard about it. Almost 10 years ago, a woman around 30 years old and traveling by herself tried to take the shortcut through Sweet Hollow Pass. It had been a particularly rainy summer after a very hard and dry winter and too much rain in too short of time had left a horrific and cataclysmic mudslides. Apparently, she'd been caught in a freak one, according to the police. After another six hours of searching, they managed to find her car, but they never found her. And they never did find her body. They say that on misty, foggy nights, like the night that she disappeared, if you're traveling in Sweet Hollow Pass, that Sally Gray will try to find you instead. Don't think about that, I muttered to myself. Do not fucking think about that. I checked the GPS. It was a miracle I'd still service out here. 15 miles, it blinked in fluorescent blue light. 20 minutes, I whispered. It was so dark outside. Trees pressed close, the canopy blocking any hint of moonlight from above, and the windshield was fogging up. I cursed quietly. It was impossible to see outside. I curled my sweatshirt over my fist and reached up, using it to wipe away the condensation. Suddenly, I could see through a tiny sliver. Shit! I I screamed and turned the steering wheel hard, heart pounding. I felt the passenger tire skim the edge of the enormous pothole. The car dipped hard and the back tire spinning out, but carefully. I felt us move past, chest tight. I let out a sigh of relief. But it didn't last long. Fuck! I yelled as I hit the brakes again. The car swerved, rear tires spinning again in the mud. But I brought us to a complete stop. Breathing hard, I glanced over at Arjun. He was still out cold. Panic setting in and the edges of my vision threatening to go white. I peered through that tiny sliver in my windshield. The air left my lungs. Arjun, I whispered, reaching over. I shook him, my eyes still staring straight ahead. Arjun, wake up. Nothing. He was out cold. My mouth went dry. There was a girl standing in the road. She was streaked with mud from head to toe, like she'd crawled from a shallow grave. Her chin was tucked into her chest, and all I could see was a head of thick, curly brown hair. She was swaying uneasily in the car's headlights like she was drugged. I squinted. It looked like she was wearing something black around her wrist. Bracelets? Rope? Broken handcuffs, maybe? 
I really couldn't see through the fogged up windshield. Slowly, carefully, I rolled down the window. Miss? I called out quietly. Are you you lost? My voice fell flat against the silent forest. I hadn't realized how quiet it had gotten. The girl visibly started at the sound of my voice. Her body twisted, like she didn't have any control over it. One green eye peeked at me from underneath the mop of curly brown hair. Then another. She was grinning, horrifically. Her mouth was stretched horribly, the lips literally going from fucking ear to ear. Yellowed, rotten teeth peeked through. That's when I realized something. I felt the air leave my lungs. Holy shit, I cried, not caring if I finally woke Arjun up. I can't believe it. She looks like me. Amy, Amy. Huh? I suddenly snapped back to Arjun hitting my shoulder. Hard. What's going on? You tell me, Arjun said uneasily. He was sitting, leaning over me, and he had my shoulder in a death grip. You were zoned out and staring straight ahead. I just woke up, found us sitting in the fucking middle of nowhere in Sweet Hollow Pass. The girl in the road. I whipped around, my heart beating furiously and my eyes searching desperately. There was no sign of her. I could feel the engine humming underneath my shaking hands. The girl, did, did you see her? See who? Arjun said quietly, his eyes never leaving me. The girl, she looked like... I whipped around again, searching valiantly around the car. Nothing, no trace of her. Looked like me. She looked like you? Arjun said cautiously. Amy, he said quietly. Are you seeing things? I swallowed uneasily. Had I fallen asleep without realizing it? While driving? But it felt so real. Cautiously, I settled back into my seat, heart pounding. I tried to put a lid on the wild panic I felt in my chest. Carefully, keeping my expression neutral, I put the car back into drive. You're right, I said quietly. It's probably nothing. It wasn't until we left the forest and the tires finally hit asphalt did I finally take a deep breath. We were almost there. Jack's cabin sat almost directly in the center between the town of Willow Creek and Hoopa Indian Reservation and alongside the very edge of the Six Rivers National Forest. We were heading to a small town of Burnt Towers. Burnt Towers was a tiny, unincorporated town of about 300 individuals. However, the proximity to Six Rivers and the breathtaking rolling hills of green in the summer and the changing leaves in the fall made it an extremely popular tourist spot. Legend has it that Burnt Towers got its name from a pair of enormous structures that suddenly appeared at the entrance of the town almost 200 years ago. Seemingly overnight, these 40 feet tall monstrosities were erected without nary a clue as to who actually built them. And there they stood until one night at three o'clock in the morning, the locals woke up to find them entirely engulfed in flames. The fire was massive, hot, and raging out of control. There was nothing anybody could do. The fire service from the nearby town of Cedar Flats had been called, but by the time they'd gotten there, it was too late. 
the towers had completely burned down. Hence the name Burnt Towers. Burnt Towers had one main road in town. There was a gas station, a bank, a grocery store, a hardware store, several stores filled with outdoor and hiking type of gear, and several restaurants. There were a few speakeasies and dive bars too, but they were located a little further down. There were five main offshoots from the downtown area, mainly neighborhoods, which is where all the locals lived, and some hotels. The park that we used to play at was back here too. Jack's cabin was located off of one of those main offshoots. It was located a few miles outside of town at the very top of a large hill. It was just as beautiful as I remembered. A large, white, Victorian-style cabin with flowers climbing the large columns that stood on either side of the front door. The flowers climbed the side of the house now and spilled out onto the large wraparound porch. This place had been built with love. Jack's dad had built it for Jack's mom after she'd been diagnosed with a rare kidney disorder about 30 years ago. A good luck charm, he called it. It must have worked, because after moving to Grovefield, Jack's mom had managed to outlast the diagnosis for almost 30 years. A living medical miracle, they called her, until she passed away about 14 years ago. I turned my phone over, the white light brightening the dim back patio. The screen clicked on. Nothing. Of course, I muttered as my heart sank. Jack hadn't texted me. I shouldn't be surprised. Despite what he'd said to me almost 10 hours ago in the parking lot of Tulum Hospital, I doubt he was actually still considering meeting us. There was just too much going on for him to just drop everything. He had work. He had school. He had his girlfriend. I shook my head. But I couldn't feel but feel the echoes of his words. I could see him in my mind's eye, and my cheeks still burned from where he touched it. Of course I'm meeting you, Amy, he said to me in that parking lot. He'd promised me. Somebody has to finish fixing you up. I shook my head again, hard. Fuck, I could not afford to think like that now, and I took a sip of tea to clear my head. It clicked gently on the patio table next to the binders from Arjun's basement. They were the ones I'd snatched desperately before we were forced to make a break for it. They were filled with maps, missing persons reports dating back almost 60 years ago, and pages and pages, tightly packed, handwritten notes. I didn't understand it, and frankly, it was making my head hurt. I shook my head again. I needed Arjun to wake up and explain. With a sigh, I sat back in my seat, thinking about everything that had transpired in the last two days. Three weeks, I murmured quietly to myself. What's happening in three weeks? Monroe was sitting outside with me, and she was tilting her head back and forth as if she was listening. I looked down at her. I don't suppose you know what Louise's dad meant when he said it's happening in three weeks. Monroe cocked her head and let out a low woof. I laughed. I don't know either, girl. I rubbed my temples hard, feeling the bones of my knuckles grind against my skull. Of course, except for one thing, Monroe was still watching me, her eyes intently focused on mine. The anniversary of Paula's disappearance. I sighed again. And at the rate everything's going, I'm sure something fucking horrible is going to happen. I reached over for the teacup, accidentally swatting a firefly that had landed on it. Oh, I'm sorry, little guy. I whispered as I pulled my hand away. 
flew away, dipping and weaving like a drunk man leaving a bar. I looked up. The whole backyard was filled with them. The fireflies looked like flickering stars coming down for a brief visit. It was beautiful. With how they'd clustered around the tops of the trees and in the bushes and grass, it looked like the entire backyard was on fire. Ugh. I rubbed my temples again. My head was killing me. This headache had started not long after the little drive through Sweet Hollow Pass. I used to get these horrible mind-splitting headaches as a kid. The kind where it felt like something fat and horrible had taken a shit on your brain and almost left behind something that was now slowly hatching inside of your skull. For months, my mom had been convinced it was just migraines. Migraines? Doctors questioned, perplexed, when my dad finally took me in. But what four-year-old gets migraines? Of course, it probably didn't help that I was introduced to Xanax not long after this. I dug my fingernails into my thigh, forcing the fog to part and my head to clear. Look, I thought to myself, it's been almost six years since I'd gotten one. This is probably just stress-related. I tilted the teacup back, chugging the rest of it. I'd just go buy some Advil in the morning. Come on, Monroe. I tapped my thigh, motioning to her and headed inside, locking the patio door behind me. By the time I woke up, my headache had gotten worse. Instead of just the throbbing headache from last night, it now felt like my brain was trying to dismember itself piece by piece and squeeze the brain tissue through my ear canals. I sat up, clutching my head. Fuck! I moaned. My feet touched the bare hardwood floors and I shivered. It was freezing. I heaved myself up and stumbled around searching in vain for the keys. In my haste, I accidentally smacked into Monroe, who was lying at the foot of the bed. She let out a loud woof, throwing me an incredibly judgmental look. I laughed. It was the same look she used to give me when in high school I would sneak in through oversized doggy door to sleep at Origins because I was high as a kite and avoiding my dad. But I knew what would change her mind. Want to go for a ride? The bell dinged as I walked into Mrs. Key's general store. Burnt Towers was empty this morning. As apparently, 7 in the morning was still a little early for people, I guess. The scent of pine needles, deck stain, and leather oil pulled me in like a hug, and I took a deep sniff. I let it out. <sighs> Everything was exactly the same. The lines of fishing poles stacked against the far wall. The cardboard boxes stacked to the ceiling and filled with packets of ramen, cereal, and the protein bars that always crumbled into dust every time you bit into them. This is where we used to get our gear for the long camping trips that were the hallmark of our summers in Burnt Towers. I bet if I looked, I could find the old aluminum flask that Jack and I had hidden inside one of the popcorn ceiling tiles when I worked here during the summer before our sophomore year. That flask of Jameson kept me blessedly numb from the chaos that always came with the crazy summer tourist months. Tap, tap, tap. Suddenly, I heard the familiar sound of spurs on hardwood floor. Is that Mrs. Amy? I see lurking around the store again. I felt myself light up into a smile. Mrs. Keys, I cried. She was in the back of the store smoking a cigarette behind the cash registers, a Marlboro light. I'd recognize that plume of smoke anywhere. She used to go through a pack a day. Despite all efforts from local authorities, you just couldn't keep me away, I laughed. 
she tapped the cigarette in her trademark ceramic cowboy hat ashtray, ashing it. Mm-hmm, she grumbled. I can remember a time or two when the cops came ca- calling to my door. She cracked a grin. And you ain't even my baby. What'll it be today, sweetheart? She tapped both hands on the thick carved desk. Look, she eagerly pointed. We've got in some new items I think you'd be interested in. She held up a silver and red latest edition 7 S14 German Swift Army knife. Brand new and fresh off the boat. No, no, I begged her off, holding up my hands. Not today, just these. On the counter, I'd set a jumbo-sized bottle of Advil and a bag of Purina dog food. Advil, huh? She rested one sharp eye on me. You getting headaches again? Her brow furrowed as her dark gray eyebrows pulled together. She looked concerned. Her gray hair, which I could remember used to be the same shade as her smoky dark brown eyes, was pulled back into a severe bun. Her tanned olive skin contrasted sharply against the thick white cable knit sweater she had on. I thought those had gone away. I winced again. The headache was beginning to pick up speed, like a storm gathering in the horizon. I cracked up in the bottle and quickly downed a couple, hoping that it would stave it off. But as the pills slid down my throat, I suddenly felt a strong wave of dizziness. Whew. I swallowed hard as everything threatened to come back at, back up. I'm sorry. Is there somewhere I can sit down? Uh, sure, hun. Mrs. Key's spurs clinked as she pulled me around into the back of the office. I felt her hands on my shoulders as she half pushed and I half fell into an uncomfortable straight back chair. I tried to swallow, wincing painfully as my throat felt scratchy and dry. Mrs. Keys noticed. Sit tight, she cried. Let me get you some water, too. Fuck, my head was throbbing. Pressing the palms of my hands against my temples, I sighed and looked around. Literally nothing had changed since the last time I was here. A large shelving unit filling almost the entire back wall was filled with cardboard boxes of inventory, fishing gear, clothing items, hats, etc. Next to the shelving unit was a small propped-up card table that we used to consider our break room. Considering that it just had a mini fridge and a microwave on a fold-out table, Jack always used to joke that we were one smelly fish sandwich away from total disaster. But wait, I paused. This was new. I got up and walked over for a better look. I felt dizzy as all the blood rushed to my head. Have you seen me? Screamed down at me from a hundred different posters. Missing. Hundreds of faces jumped out at me. Men, women, children. It looked like every age and race was up on that board. Mrs. Keys had hung a giant orange corkboard that was filled with missing posters. Stunned and momentarily forgetting the roaring headache, I reached up to trace the face of a missing child. Betty Ingram, I read, my voice catching my throat. Ten years old, missing in Yosemite National Park. I read another one. Patricia Rose, aged 45 years old, last seen in Six Rivers National Park. My voice cracked. Tom Parker, 21 years old, reported missing after friends woke up to find him gone from their campsite in Tahoe National Forest. I checked the dates. A shiver ran through me. These were all dated from the past 10 years. Patrice Montclair, age 31, reported missing after she didn't return from a hike in, 
I paused. In Yosemite National Park, on the Glacier Point Trail, I felt my brain turning. I stared at her photo. What happened to you? I whispered. Her dark eyes stared back at me, saying nothing. The longer I stared at her, the worse my headache got. I felt tears rise in the back of my throat as I suddenly felt an overwhelming urge to just cry. Her picture blurred as they clouded my vision. What the fuck was happening out in Yosemite National Park? Fuck! I cut my ears. The pressure in my head had gotten so bad that my ears were starting to ring. It sounded shrill, high-pitched, and like a tuning into a TV channel where somebody was being brutally murdered. I grimaced, glancing back at Patrice's picture. Is this what it sounded like right before you disappeared? Then, as if in response to my question, her picture suddenly moved. I gasped. No, 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 no. I muttered frantically, screwing my eyes shut. My brain felt like it was on fire. The pressure in my ears was becoming unbearable. And most of all, I just couldn't believe this was happening again. It's been years since. Shit, no, stop. I would not let myself think about it. I backed away from the wall, feeling behind me for the chair. My knee hit the corner of the filing cabinet hard, but I didn't dare open my eyes. My heart was pounding furiously. Where was my bag? Amy? My eyes flew open. Mrs. Keys was standing in the doorway. Is everything all right? She asked, looking uneasy. God, I must have looked silly, walking backwards with my eyes shut like that. She had a bottle of water in one hand and a hot water bottle in another. I'm fine, I chirped, forcing a smile on my face. Sorry about that. I'm feeling a lot better. I headed out towards the front door, my heart pounding. I'll call you once I get settled in. I could hear her calling out to me as I stumbled towards the front door, but I couldn't stop. I could feel Patrice's eyes watching me as I walked out. In a daze, I burst onto a busy sidewalk. Burnt Towers was bustling now. The shops were open. The diner I'd parked in front of was packed, and people were racing around, getting ready to hit the trails early. In the morning light, flushed against the normal sea of people going to breakfast with their families, the Pontiac looked bad. I winced, seeing heads turn as I opened the driver's side door and I knew they were looking at the busted passenger window and the twisted chunks of metal and glass. I knew I should care, but I didn't. I couldn't care. I couldn't think. I couldn't breathe. My stomach roiled and flipped as a kaleidoscope of emotion cycled through my brain. The headache had gotten worse. Those two Advil I'd taken in Mrs. Key's shop be damned, and the pain ebbed and flowed with a pulse of blood. I fought back tears as I couldn't believe this was happening again. No, I whispered. Stop. Don't cry. I shut my eyes tightly and gripped the steering wheel. You're going to make it worse. I could feel my knuckles starting to turn white. It didn't help that I, every time I closed my eyes, every time I blinked, I could see Patrice's face. I could still see what it looked like the second it started to move. Fuck, stop. Stop, okay, stop. I reached over to grab Monroe. Dude, girl, stop barking. Monroe was sitting in the passenger seat and she was absolutely 
losing her mind. Girl, this isn't helping. People were sitting next to us at the patio tables of Lucky Dave's local spot, and I could feel the heat of stares from the entire restaurant. I grabbed her collar in an attempt to calm her down. Girl, what the fuck are you even barking at? My voice trailed off. My blood went cold. I saw where she was looking. There was something standing behind the dumpsters at the end of the street. I leaned forward, my eyes straining. For a minute, there was nothing. Just a quiet alleyway behind the local grocery store. There, slowly, as I watched, something peeked over the lid of the dumpsters. Then suddenly, it ducked back down, like it was trying to hide. This was the same thing I'd seen back in Sweet Hollow Pass. The thing that looked like me. I smashed my eyes shut, grinding the heels of my hands into my eyes. Fuck. The building pressure in my head threatened to pop my eyes like grapes. Please be gone. Please be gone. Please be gone. I sobbed. Then I stopped. Breathing in a shuddering, stealing sense of resolve, I gingerly opened them back up. Nothing. My mind felt splintered, chaotic, and like all the pieces were slowly falling apart. I felt trapped, cornered, like how a field mouse must feel when being stalked by a hawk. I took another big shuddering breath in. I looked over at Monroe, and she was looking at me with all the fur standing up on her back. Reaching out, I put my hand on her soft jet black head. She was shaking. Let's get out of here, I whispered. The drive home felt agonizingly long. It didn't help that my head was pounding and my phone was practically ringing nonstop. Whoever this was, they'd called me like 10 times in the past five minutes. Without looking, I just turned off the ringer and tossed it into the footwell of the passenger seat. It wasn't five minutes later when I finally pulled into the winding driveway that led past a pair of massive Douglas firs and up to Jack's cabin. To my surprise, Arjun was waiting for me outside. He barely waited for me to park before he threw open the door. Amy, I've been calling you, he said, with one balled up fist on his hip. Literally like 20 times. You need to pick up. You just weren't answering. There's something we need. Oh, that was you, I mumbled, shoving him aside. The bag from Mrs. Keys swung wide and hit me hard, the Advil digging into my hip bone. I texted you and told you I was going into town. Yeah, that was me, he sounded mad. Arjun tried to follow me, but the bulky cast on his legs slowed him down. But that's not what we need to talk about, Amy. Amy, listen. Can this wait until after a nap? I could feel my body shutting down. The events from this morning were catching up to me, and I needed at least 10 more Advil in me. I walked up to the front door with Monroe bouncing up the steps next to me. Wait, Amy. I could hear Arjun crying out right behind me. Wait, there's something I need to tell you. I swung open the front door to find a mountain of suitcases in the foyer. My heart stopped. Oh, I said quietly. They're here. Arjun huffed. He'd finally caught up to me. The red bathrobe he was wearing flapped as he heaved himself up the steps. They got in about an hour ago. 
I could feel the wheels turning in my head. Arjun, I said slowly. Who's they? Suddenly, I heard a voice that I never thought I'd hear again. A voice that I knew belonged to my best friend in the entire world until three years ago when she threatened to shoot me if I didn't leave her house and never come back. And rightfully so. Oh, hell no, she cried. You've got to be fucking kidding me. I winced. Hi, Louise. What is she doing here? Louise growled. Every syntax in her voice positively dripped with venom. They were all in the living room. Patrice, Mikey, Jack. The old gang was all here. Jack had brought everybody. I was stunned. I watched as she turned to Jack. You told me she wasn't going to be here. I looked at Arjun. His face looked ashen and his eyes wheeled widely between me and Louise. I took a deep breath. I think now is a good time to take a nap. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of parts three and four of Missing Sister Returns 15 Years Later. I hope you're thoroughly creeped out as I am. And if you are a fan of the show and enjoy this story, consider sending in your own story to blameitonthealiens at gmail.com or just email your favorite Reddit stories. Um, I would love to read them in the show. And as always, listen back next week for another great episode. I'll be doing um, parts five and hopefully part six as it is posted on Reddit um, within the next week. And I'll also be releasing another Glitch in the Matrix themed story. Um, You'll just have to tune in next week to see what that one's about. So thanks, guys. See you next week.